The second scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of John. I will read chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Listen for the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The story read this morning from the book of Acts is the story of the church's first episode of expanding its mission field beyond those who were originally Jewish to those who were Gentile, that is, to everyone else. It begins with Peter reporting to his fellow church leaders in Jerusalem. It seems that Peter has been called in by his peers for questioning. They have received reports that Peter had eaten with people who had not been circumcised. He had eaten with people who did not grow up with the same Jewish background that he and his fellow apostles had. He had been more inclusive than his peers condoned. And they were concerned because his inclusivity called into question the group's religious integrity. Their concern is worth repeating. They feared inclusivity would risk integrity. You can imagine the tension in the air This was, after all, a meeting about who is in and who is out. Such meetings are hard and sometimes heartbreaking. They are especially hard when there are well-intentioned people, people who want to maintain integrity on all sides of the disagreement. Such disagreements happen all the time and everywhere. They happen in religious communities. They happen in neighborhoods schools, and clubs. They happen in families. Later this week, I will go to a much-anticipated family reunion. Three generations on the Keel side of my family, my mom's side, will gather at my cousin's home in Dallas, Texas. My mom, her six siblings and their spouses, their 14 children and their spouses, and their 22 grandchildren will come from all over the United States and Korea for this gathering. Our extended family hasn't been together for over a decade. 
Previous reunions were the weddings of the second generation, the generation of my cousins and me. I suppose that, to some extent, weddings of family members are often occasions that raise questions about inclusion and integrity. The integrity of a family is always changed by the inclusion of a new member. For the generation of my cousins and me, The weddings at which our extended family came together were occasions when we always observed the older generation really wrestling with these questions. As my cousins and I each got married, our uncles and aunts worried about what would happen if their children grew up to to marry people who were not Korean. What would stay intact and what wouldn't? Two decades ago, none of the Kiel family could have anticipated how interracial and now biracial the Kiel family would become. The concern, I think, that often underlies any group's tribal fears is that inclusiveness can jeopardize the integrity of the group. It is a real problem, one that nearly every social group, including the earliest church, had to address. When I was starting graduate school in the 1990s, there was a lot of research and work being done on this issue. As inclusivity was becoming increasingly paramount as a value in so many social institutions, insofar as social institutions uphold certain values and norms that form our character, people started wondering if inclusivity would jeopardize people's integrity or moral character. I have just recently reread journalist Paul Tuff's book, How Children Succeed. In it, he lays out how in the educational arena, the debate about character education evolved. Research was revealing that when it came to the success of children, more important than how much information we can put into a child's brain, things like vocabulary and math facts, is whether we are able to help the child develop a very different set of qualities. Qualities that have more to do with character, traits like honesty, fairness, compassion, and respect of others. Before long, however, educators and psychologists began debating what character really meant. Out of this debate arose a distinction between moral character traits, traits like honesty, fairness, and compassion, and performance character traits, things like being a hard worker, having grit, being curious, In an increasingly diverse society, and one in which inclusivity was becoming paramount, it became more problematic to make the case for moral character education. Because you see, moral character or integrity was thought to require a uniform, cohesive culture in which the norms, expectations, and beliefs that are passed down from one generation to the next are embedded in creeds, stories, traditions, and rituals that all make up a consistent and coherent 
worldview. Moral character traits were thought to arise necessarily out of coherent, monolithic cultures. Given that we no longer live in a monolithic culture, and given that we want to live in an inclusive culture, according to the argument, we simply cannot expect individuals to develop moral integrity. In light of these assumptions, it became questionable then whether schools should be trying to improve students' moral character at all. It is true that we do not live in a monolithic culture and that we will likely never and that we likely never will. It is true that older generations cannot assume that younger generations are going to grow up with religious and moral knowledge that is consistently reinforced in every sphere of life. This is a matter of concern. As a parent, I am certainly concerned about whether the values I tried most to instill in my daughter at home and at church will be reinforced or diluted in the sea of other values in the many different arenas in her life. As we are living in a time when inclusivity has become a reigning cultural value in our social institutions, it is all the more imperative that we figure out how not to pit integrity against inclusivity. It is all the more imperative that we strive to know whether the two Integrity and inclusivity can be upheld as morally, culturally, and theologically compatible. This is one way of framing the debate that Peter faced in Jerusalem and that Paul would face in his mission to the Gentile world. For Peter and Paul, the conversion of Gentile Christians did not mean that the Gentiles had to reject everything about their prior lives in order to accept the gospel of Christ. Moreover, it didn't mean that the Jewish Christians could hold on to and maintain everything about their prior lives. The inclusion of Gentiles made a claim on them too. Both Gentiles and Jews would have to figure out how integrity and inclusivity could be compatible. Fortunately, Jesus showed the way. He did not simply give the church a mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth without enabling them to do so. He gave us a new commandment by which to do it. I give you a new commandment, he said, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In her book, All About Love, cultural critic, social activist, and author, Bell Hooks bemoaned that there are not many public discussions of love in our culture. While everyone wants to know more about love, what it means to love and to be loved, Schools for love, she writes, do not exist. Everyone assumes, she wrote, that we will know how to love instinctively, and everyone leaves it to our families to be the primary school for love. Having grown up 
in an abusive family, Bell Hooks questioned the wisdom of this. As I read her treatise on love, I reflected on what my schools of love have been. Where did I learn what love is and how to receive it and give it? As a child, I was schooled in love at home. The unconditional, stable love that my parents gave me has kept my emotional bank full all my days. The other school of love which continues to form me long beyond my childhood is the church. Just as Jesus gave the love commandments to his grown disciples, he has given it to us. Love, Jesus said, would be the trait by which everyone would know that we are his disciples. That the church should be a school of love doesn't mean that it always has been. We know that some of the greatest harms to people's trust and faith have been perpetuated and perpetrated by abuses in the church and by the church. If the church is truly to be the body of Christ, if it is truly to follow Christ's command, it should be a school of love. While the church is not a substitute for the attachment that should form between a parent and a child in the child's earliest years of life, the church can certainly be a community in which children can develop trusting relationships with adults. While the church is not the same as a family of flesh and blood, it is nonetheless a family created by water and the spirit The love that binds a church family together is more public than private. Here I find it helpful to draw on Ed Chambers' conception of public relationships. In his classic book, Roots for Radicals, community organizer Ed Chambers puts pen to paper and delivered a body of social knowledge that he had accumulated over years and years of relating to people from all walks of life, people who raise children, run businesses, lead organizations, and stay at home. It is a pragmatic know-how book about how people from different races, religions, classes, political parties, and neighborhoods can overcome real differences to work together for the common good. In it, Chambers wrote about the potential of public relationships to create a new social reality. He explained that public relationships go to the root of who we are and what we care about. They are relationships in which we can raise possibilities and aspirations. These relationships may not be with the people with whom we grew up. They may not be with people we see every day or with people who share our background. They may not be our most intimate relationships. Yet they are the relationships out of which we can imagine a new social reality When people connect with one another at the level of their core values, a public relationship is formed, one that transcends the narrower limits of family, clan, and class. Our public relationships are different from our private lives. The truth is, in our private lives, 
We aren't given a choice about the family, the race, the particular history into which we are born, whether we like it or not. Our original identities are often shaped by conditions that we didn't choose for ourselves. So, it is in our public relationships, more than in our private lives, that we actually have greater opportunity to exercise our freedom and choice and imagination and compassion and love. As counterintuitive as it may seem, in the public realm more than in the private realm, we are allowed to be our whole, most complex, most spirited, and most loving selves. This is my experience in church. The church where I grew up in Richmond, Kentucky, the church I served in downtown Chicago, and the church that we are together. As human and flawed as all churches are, these have been schools of love that have formed generations of disciples who exercise public love, formed by water and the Spirit. In this community of faith, we love one another, carry one another's burdens, learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, strive to love our enemies, are shown what it means to lay down one's life for others, and see all of humanity as God's children, so precious in God's sight. These are the lessons of inclusive love that form our character all our days. Thanks be to God for the body of Christ and these gifts of vision and love. Amen.